Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Sometimes dead is better. Today we are discussing Pet Cemetery. No, not the new 2019 remake, but the 1989 film written by Stephen King himself. This is your co-host Corbin. I'm Alan, and yeah, new cemetery, new pet cemetery comes out in like uh, I think a week after this recording goes live. So yeah, I think I saw April 4th. I think I believe is the release date, April 4th or 5th. So like one week after this, which is kind of cool because this film came out 30 years ago. That's right. Yeah, I guess it did come out 30 years ago. It's getting quite old. <laughs> it's getting quite old. It's we're not quite as old as it, but uh, I'm I'm close. I'm closer than you are. Yeah, yeah, you're definitely closer. So it's not good. But the book did. This is based on a book, the of the same title, Pet Cemetery, which was the book was released in 1983. As I said, the film was in 89. Now, I did read the book for this recording. And are are we going to wait for that until we get into the review? I will wait to talk about similarities and stuff, but overall, I really enjoyed the book. Okay. Uh, All right. There's not, uh, I don't think I've read a Stephen King book that I haven't enjoyed uh, because he is such a great writer. Um, the only one that I actually haven't finished that I started about a year and a half ago, and it's only like 200 pages long, is The Gunslinger, his very first book. And he even admits in that book, like, hey, this, you know, I wasn't as good of a writer back then, and I kind of didn't really know what I was doing with this story direction-wise anyway. So that's the only one. Otherwise, I love reading his books. I own quite a few of them and I haven't even read all the ones that I own there's like four or five of them that I haven't read yet so I'd like to but I was uh I've I had never read Pet Cemetery, and I had only seen this movie one other time many years ago have you ever seen this movie Alan I have not I've definitely heard of it but I haven't ever sat down to watch it until I guess now uh I think the only like connection i have with it is i listened to part of the review from now playing because i know that they did one over this and that's i didn't listen to the whole thing because i think i got into spoilers but that's about as far as my knowledge goes aside from just knowing that it exists and that's a stephen king adaptation so you're new to it more so than i but i hadn't i didn't really remember anything about this movie i remembered one character in this film and i also remember the big scene, kind of the pivotal scene of this movie. I kind of had flashes of that. That's a little hard to forget. I won't give it away any spoilers, but when you have events based around a child in such a way, those are always kind of hard to forget, especially in movies. Right, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I guess somewhat we're kind of new to this, although you did end up reading the book before watching it again, so you do have a little bit of foreknowledge as to for most likely what's going to happen in this movie. Yes, and I was really hoping that this movie would stick close to the book because I did love the book so much and the storytelling. Of course, Stephen King writes really dynamic, intimate 
characters, but I was hoping that this would follow along fairly closely. Now, if it did or not, well, you'll have to wait till after we get after the spoiler, re spoiler, rewarning. <laughs> after we get past the spoiler warning. Now, they did make a sequel, actually, to I this movie. The sequel came out three years later, and it actually retained the same director. Really? Yeah. Ma interesting. Mary Lambert, she hasn't done a lot, but she did direct this movie, and she had Stephen King write it. Um, Stephen King did not write the second one. Um, there are many sequels based off of Stephen King books. I think they're on like Children of the Corn 10 by yeah. now or something. Something like that, yeah. And King has no involvement with those whatsoever. So I don't really consider those those are, if anything, more so fan fiction. I don't really consider those a part of King's oeuvre or really canonical with his like thoughts about characters. Right. Uh, it was kind of odd because the sequel was written by Richard Otten and he, that was the only film he ever wrote before or since. Huh? Well, I mean, I saw that there was a, 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 a I guess a sequel when I had looked at this in like the recommendation section of IMDb. So until today or yesterday, maybe I didn't realize that there was even a sequel out. But that does, I guess it's not too big of a surprise because I did see the IMDb score. It's like a four and a half mm -hmm. that the writer didn't really end up going on to do anything else. So <laughs> whatever. Yeah, that score is interesting. I did watch the movie. Uh, I watched both of them, actually. And for those of you who are Amazon Prime subscribers, you can watch both films right now with your Prime video subscription. I know that's the way that I watched. I watched them, so it was pretty convenient that way. I, I knew the first one was on there, but I didn't realize the second one was on there. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and I'll just give, I guess, my brief thoughts over the sequel. I am kind of a sucker for 80s B-horror movies, um, especially as something fun to do on a summer night. I kind of opt for some lesser-known horror movies that aren't necessarily as good, but they're just kind of weird enough that they work. This almost gets to that point for me, um, especially the first half of the movie. I was fairly into it. it was kind of interesting and decently well done. Uh, but the third act is where it completely lost me. And I ended up just not finishing it because it was going on far too long. It was like a 30-minute climax. Oh, great. Um, now, that that will work in something like The Lord of the Rings because that's epic, but this isn't. And they just really kind of lost the whole pacing. And at that point, I just didn't really care. I I totally lost interest. So it and it went off into some really unbelievable places that I just couldn't track with. Um, when you start to have, uh, there's a dream sequence where this guy thinks that he is uh, making love to his dead wife, but she gets a fake dog head. Um, because they're taking care of this dog that comes back and then it turns into the dog head and then it turns into the dog. That's where you start to lose me. Um, not a really fun sequence to <laughs> sit through. 
and it's that a bit graphic. Sounds, that sounds kind of interesting, just by how insane that from what you're, I'm hearing here. It is. They've got this really horrible fake dog head that they just you know made up. It's like a mask, but it's supposed to be real, and it's like bet it looks a little bit better than a mask, but. Oh gosh! And the that's hilarious. You should. I want to. I challenge you to listen to the soundtrack for Pet Cemetery Two. All right. It is. It is weird. Not. I mean, not that they just play some kind of uh, immoral uh, rock and roll style yeah. music uh, with some bizarre lyrics, but there's kind of this main theme of it that I do actually like, but it's. It just doesn't seem like it fits with the movie. Gotcha. All right. I'll have to look it up then. So I guess ultimately, as you can tell by me shutting it off, I can't necessarily recommend the sequel. I don't know if it completely deserves that low of a score on IMDb. It's more so just a mediocre movie than uh, like a real piece of trash. And maybe if it wasn't so late at night, I would have stuck through to the end. But I was pretty tired watching it that late so that could have hampered some of my interest as well uh but moving along i did want to also mention that the director like i said is mary lambert and i actually have seen one of her other movies um like i said she hasn't done much but i did see her uh direct halloween town 2 calabar's revenge which was a disney channel original movie i don't know if you have any familiarity with that alan I know of Halloween Town, the two movies that uh, are out. I think there's actually like spinoffs as well, but I haven't. Okay, yeah, I've have seen pieces of the first and second, but not enough to really, uh, I guess, remember what they're about. Aside from, I guess, just looking at the plot summary on IMDb, I know that they exist, but I haven't ever sat down to watch them. Sure. If you want something fun to watch around Halloween time with your family, especially like younger kids, then Halloween Town is a safe bet. And the second one, Calabar's Revenge, is probably the better of the two. So. Gotcha. All right. Now, it is interesting to note that this book is deeply personal to Stephen King, and he also believes it to be his most frightening work he has ever written. And let me explain that. Frightening not in the sense as scary, because most of his readers would agree that The Shining is his scariest work. The reason he says this is his most frightening is because he is basing it off of personal experience with a twist. Where the Creed family lives and the active roadway that goes along that is directly based from Stephen King's life. He and packed his family up, moved um, up to this town in Maine, and this is all shot in Maine. It's based in real towns in Maine. Stephen King grew up in Maine. Like most of his books are take place in the state of Maine, and those are real cities and towns. Well, he lived there with his family, and he had two young kids, and his daughter had a cat. I can't remember if the cat's name is the exact same name from this book, but they do like some of the, hit, the things the daughter said about the cat. He directly transplants those into the book. And we kind of get some of those quotes here in the movie. He also had a young son and they lived by this really active roadway. And he uh, 
was told that a lot of pets were killed on this road. And then he thought, um, what if um, we were playing out in the front yard and, you know, I accidentally took my eyes off my son for a second. Like, what if that happened and he died? So he started writing a book um, based upon that. And he actually, it was just like too kind of overwhelming for him. He didn't really, it was like I said, too frightening for him. So he was originally not even going to release this book to the public. Interesting. But he was departing with his current publisher and he still owed them one more book. And he just so happened to have Pet Cemetery lying around for a while. So he's like, okay, I already have this book written. I guess I'll go ahead and give it to them, even though I'm not really too happy about it. So we were originally never intended to read Pet Cemetery. This was kind of his own exercise in uh, fiction that he ultimately just found to be uh, too much, but he did end up releasing it. So kind of one of the more interesting histories surrounding his book. That's interesting because, I mean, I'm sure that multiple authors have multiple books they have that they just are never going to release. But that is interesting that uh, Stephen King almost didn't release Pet Cemetery because I know that the movie is pretty popular because well, for part of it is because he's Stephen King. But at the, on the other hand, too, it's also somewhat of a classic in terms of 80s horror now. Oh, yeah. This is definitely one people think of and cite, and you hear little references to throughout the years. And it came at the very tail end of the 80s. It came out April 21st, 1989, uh, which was kind of the sweet spot, which was a really nice idea to release it then. Um, it did have a budget of $11.5 million. It made back its budget and then some opening weekend with number one at the box office at $12 million. It went up against almost nothing of note that hadn't already been there for quite a while, such as right. Major League, Say Anything, The Dream Team, which is a Michael Keaton movie that I love, and Rain Man. Rain Man had oh, okay. Rain Man was number five of the box office, but it was in its nineteenth week. Gotcha. Yeah, the only the only other movie that I could think of off the top of my head uh, that I know comes out in '89 is Back to the Future Part Two, but that wasn't oh, yeah. released until late November. So oh. that's not really even much of a competition, I guess. No, I guess not. But the film would go on to gross fifty-seven point five million. So that's good. It did really well for itself. Yeah, it did do well because I know we've we've talked about this before. Where usually, if you make your money back opening weekend, then you're then you're in set for a good trek. Miss made like oh gosh, almost fourfold of its uh, original budget, which is really good. Oh yeah, it did very well, and you want to make a profit. You want to make that money back. Plus, you would hope to at least double it to make it worth it, and it did. So it did really pay off. But did it pay off with audiences at the time? Well, CinemaScore, which is kind of the preferred method because it does gauge people who have actually seen the movie. They're coming out of the theater and they're asked to rank it on a A to F scale with pluses and minuses in between. Audiences gave this film a B. Well, that's not too bad. I mean, it's definitely from the movies that we've reviewed that have a CinemaScore, we've 
kind of noticed that uh, if it's usually above a B plus and maybe a B, then it's considered, I guess, good because most movies tend to be that way. And then anything below that is typically not good. Yeah, this is kind of in the okay range. This is in the fine yeah. range. Yeah, it's a fine movie. Sure. Yeah, it was, it was decent enough. Nothing right. to write home about, but clearly audiences kept coming back to see it, probably for good reason, because some of the stuff is pretty heavy or just kind of traumatizing. Just thing places you wouldn't have expected to go and see in a horror movie so it was kind of right i had a lot of buzz i will note that the sequel is also on cinema score and it and it also got a b okay that's interesting so audiences thought they thought exactly the same of both movies now as for imdb it holds a 6.6 .6, which is mediocre yeah it's that's a bit low i mean especially for Somebody who has been known to be the one who wrote the story for a little movie called Shawshank Redemption and The Shining. To, I mean, to be, to be fair, The Shining is more of a horror movie than Shawshank Redemption is, but still, you would, it, it, if you don't know Stephen King's movies very well, and you're not, like, I guess, versed in the Stephen King universe, I guess you could say, most of his adaptations are typically not that great. So this is relatively mediocre. Both in terms of, uh, both in terms of how the rest of his movies are scored, and just kind of how the scoring goes on to be in general. Yeah, exactly. And I did. You brought up Shawshank Redemption, and it's interesting because um, one of the main players in the sequel is also a prominent person in the Shawshank Redemption. Um, oh. Do you remember the the tall and kind of burly prison guard with the deep voice in Shawshank Redemption? He's kind of like the head prison guard. Yeah, yeah. He he's done a lot of different um, voice acting in other parts over the years. Um, he was in uh, Pet Cemetery too, so I'm like, hey, that's so he's been in two oh. Stephen King movies. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Now critics gave Pet Cemetery a fifty percent. So that means 50% liked it and 50% didn't like it. So it's, I guess you could say it was a polarizing movie. Yeah. That was, that would be considered rotten, I suppose, if it's at 50%. Yes. It so. was considered rotten, which is kind of confusing because 50% seems kind of right down the, it, well, 50% is right down the line. So yeah. just because 50% didn't like it, that means another 50% did like it. So I wouldn't necessarily consider it rotten, even though Rotten Tomatoes does. Yeah. I mean, it would be considered an F. So there is that. It would be considered an F, but all of these yeah. grading scores are all different. So they don't really work to yeah. translate them if you Fair try. Uh, so a little history here for you that I think you might find interesting the rights were originally sold to George A. Romero. Oh, most notably known for his Night of the Living Dead movie. That's true. And some, some sequels. He basically invented what we know today as the modern zombie franchise with, like yeah. Alan said, Night of the Living Dead. So George A. Romero was going to make this movie, and I would have loved to see a George A. Romero Pet Cemetery film. That would have been so interesting because... Being, I guess you could say, I guess a fitting title for him would be the master of zombie movies. Mm -hmm. 
knowing that and knowing the subject matter this movie's going to go into, I think that that would have been a very interesting mesh of style between Stephen King and a very renowned horror director at this point. If I'm not mistaken, they have worked together on something before. Okay. Don't quote me, but I'm, I feel like I've looked into that. I've heard that before. So listeners, if you know what I'm talking about, if you know, go ahead and comment below because I'd be interested to know. Now, the rights were sold in 1984, which was right after the book released in 83. And that's something common to Stephen King. As soon as his book hits store shelves, or usually now more so than back then, the movie rights will be already like optioned into the release. Everything he has written for the most part has been adapted to screen or they are in they're in the process. There's somebody owns the rights. So his books yeah. are a TV goldmine. But Romero had to pull out because he was involved with a project called Monkey Shines. And for a few years, uh, the film industry was basically all kinged out. They said, we've had enough of your adaptions. We are just going to shelve the rights to this right now. But a little thing happened in 1988. The Raiders Guild of America went on strike, and that caused oh, Paramount yeah. to reconsider making this film because they didn't really have a uh, many productions in the works. So they pulled this one off the shelf. And King was involved with the creation of this film, which always makes me feel better when I'm watching an adaptation is if the author has some involvement with it. Right. And I mean, it can go one of two different ways, uh, because writing a book and writing a screenplay are two different things, because there's a little thing called a visual medium that what is what film is, which when you write a novel, you don't have that luxury. You have to explain how things look. So there sometimes uh, actually this happens, but I guess quite often where the writer will come in to oversee the project and then. And once again, it can go one way or the other where it's not really well done as an adaptation or it's fine. I think one of the other uh, ones that I can remember off the top of my head is Hunger Games. I know that the author came in, at least for the first movie, and got to oversee the project, mm -hmm. uh, how it was completed. I don't know how much input he had, but I know he was there. So, yeah, it could go one of, the, it could go one of two ways. So, there you go. Yeah, that, that is true because, like Alan said... It is a really different process with writing both mediums. And the only way that it does make me feel better is not necessarily that I'm guaranteed the work is going to be good, but at least whatever I see on screen is sanctioned by the author. So whatever changes that are, whatever changes occur or whatever additions are added then I know the author is okay with that because he wrote that in. For the most part, now, there is a change in here that I'm not really sure that King had any say in. I think the studio kind of came in and uh, changed it. Um, I guess I can't talk to you about that just yet because that is a huge spoiler. So we're going to have to talk about that after the spoilers. But nevertheless... King was involved, and he did want it shot in Maine. He was insistent upon that, and it was shot in rural Maine, which Maine looks very beautiful. I'd love to visit there someday. I've never been. Yeah, that's way north. That's got to be cold. Oh, yeah. But yeah, so 
yeah, I guess we'll talk about how that is one thing I guess that is uh, usually nice when a when a writer of the of the stories on set is yeah you do get either an accurate portrayal of the of the book that was written and or you get I guess the author's okay to make the changes that are necessary for the film to work. So either way, usually, like I said, and in theory, the movie when that's put on the screen that has the author on set is, you would assume, to be the thing that is okay with the author. Therefore, it is okay for the big screen. And uh, other people did consider this to be a good adaptation, such as IFC, which is the, I believe, the International Film Channel. Something like that. Thank you. Yeah, and Rolling Stone. They have ranked it as the 16th best Stephen King adaption. So, I mean, take that as you will. There's been like, I don't know, well over 100 adaptions, it seems like. But Yeah, especially around this time when this movie came out, there were a lot of King adaptations that were on the big screen. Yeah, but I mean, it's in the top 20, so it's in the top 25%. So, I think that's good. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think anyways uh so I did want to mention something just so listeners who have seen the movie going in they can keep this in mind or if you are about to watch the movie then you'll know what I'm talking about um the character of Zelda is actually not played by a woman Really yes uh Zelda is played by Andrew Hubacek and they decided to go with and they did audition women but they thought going with a man ultimately to play a woman would make it more of an unsettling choice. All right, I can see why they would make that choice then. Yeah. That's interesting. I didn't actually put much thought into it that it would have been uh, not a woman being played for this role. I didn't think anything of it either the first time I saw it, except it something seemed a little off. Because I'm like, eh, this looks a little weird. Um but then on the second time, with that knowledge in mind, I thought, ah, okay, I can see it, and this makes sense. It it was a really interesting choice. It was a good choice. Yeah. Okay. Well, listeners, we are about to jump into the plot of the film, which means we will be spoiling it. So if you have not seen Pet Cemetery just yet and you don't want the movie spoiled for you, go ahead and click pause right now. Go watch the movie, come back, and click play, and we'll be ready to talk about all the wonderful, spoily, spoilery details of Pet Cemetery. The Creed family is your typical nuclear family. Husband, wife, one boy, one girl. They move to scenic rural Maine for Patriarch Lewis's, played by Dale Midkiff, his new job as the doctor of a university. They have a next-door neighbor who has lived in that same house his whole life, Judd Crandall, played by Fred Gwynn. The two are separated by a dangerously active roadway, which sees frequent usage by Orinco semi-trucks. In the Creed's backyard, daughter Ellen, played by Blaze Bertle, finds a path leading into the forest. Judd takes the family up there to show them the pet cemetery, a place where the young residents of the town bury their pets. The cemetery is enclosed by a large, seemingly unclimbable deadfall. Despite being a seemingly ordinary quaint graveyard, Lewis's wife, Rachel, played by Denise Crosby, is upset by Judd's reasoning 
kids should learn about death. The next day, Lewis's first day on the job, he experiences a tragic death firsthand. A student, Victor Pascal, played by Brad Greenquist, is hit so badly by a car that he dies from the trauma, but not before eerily telling Lewis, the soil of a man's heart is stonier and he tends what he can, and he bodily leaves this earth by promising he'll see Lewis that night. He does make good on that promise and awakens Lewis who believes he's only dreaming. Pascal takes him to the pet cemetery where he warns Lewis, do not cross the barrier, referring to the deadfall. Thanksgiving rolls around with no real excitement for Lewis. Rachel wishes to visit her parents, but Lewis alludes to his rocky relationship with them. On Thanksgiving Day, while Rachel, Ellen, and Gage, played by Miko Hughes, are in Chicago, Lewis receives a phone call from Judd Crandall, bearing the bad news that Ellen's cat, Church, is dead on his lawn. Worried Ellen isn't yet ready to face death, Judd decides to take Lewis on a little trip beyond the pet cemetery past the deadfall. They reach the Micmac Indian burial ground. Not understanding why, Lewis buries Church anyway. To his surprise, Church comes back to life, but changed. Meanwhile, the Creed's housekeeper, Missy Dandridge, played by Susan Blomert, abruptly commits suicide because she can no longer stand her stomach pains. This event causes Ellen to question Lewis about the life afterlife, to which he really has no solid beliefs, but we do learn why death makes Rachel cry. See, when she was a young girl, she had a sister named Zelda, who suffered from spinal meningitis. One night when her parents were out, Rachel was feeding Zelda when Zelda began to choke and ultimately suffocated to death. Ever since, Rachel has not only had a fear of death, but a fear her sister may come back for revenge. After winter passes, the family enjoys the outdoors. They have a picnic, engage, and Lewis fly a kite together. While Ellen is asking for her turn to fly the kite, Lewis takes his eyes off of Gage, who tragically wanders into the road and is instantly killed. Racked with grief, the family bury Gage, but not before a fist fight between Lewis and Rachel's dad occurs. In the hopes of patching things up, Lewis suggests Rachel and Ellen visit them in Chicago, and he'll be along eventually. Except Lewis has no intention of going. Instead, he plans to dig up Gage's corpse and transplant it in the Micmac burial ground. Meanwhile, in Chicago, Ellen is having dreams of terrible things happening to Daddy. She claims Pax-Cow is warning her. In fact, Pascal's spirit is aiding the family as their disfigured guardian angel. Worried Ellen may be right, Rachel, with the help of Pascal, flies back to Maine, but not before being warned in a demonic vision, Zelda and Gage are out to get her. Before she can reach her home, she hears the voice of her deceased sister calling from Judd's house. Upon entering the house, she sees her decrepit sister and hears the laugh of her son. As she embraces the boy, he drives his father's medical scalpel into his mother, thereby murdering her. The following morning, Lewis gets a phone call from Judd's house. Except it's not Judd. It's Gage, who professes morbid events of how he murdered his mother and Judd Crandall. Resigning himself to the fate his wife and best friend are dead, Lewis fills a few syringes full of death-inducing medicine. First, he kills Church, then he finds Judd slashed up. And then, worst of all, he finds Rachel hanging, and fights a horrific Gage whom he eventually stabs with a syringe. He burns down the house and all in it, save for Rachel, who he believes 
may be able to come back normal if he doesn't wait too long. Ignoring the final warning from Victor Pascal, Rachel does come back, and the two sickeningly embrace as she lifts a knife to murder Lewis, which prompts him to scream as credits roll. Yeah, quite the uh, interesting movie we have here. Um, Definitely from the 80s. I, I'm pretty sure it'd be hard to think of any other time period that this would have been released in, in my mind. Yes, you can definitely tell it's from the 80s. I would say the always the giveaway it's from the 80s is not necessarily the clothes they wear because these people's clothes really aren't too out of uh I mean people wear these clothes now today also. I would say yeah. it's kind of the film that it's shot on. Every decade has a certain type of film that kind of um categorizes it to that specific decade. So, you can tell it's done, done in the 80s. And also, there are many horror films that just kind of have the same feeling to the story structure yeah. and visual effects. So, yeah, you're right. It looks a lot like the 80s. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, though, because I do like no. some of those 80s horror movies. Yeah. It is also interesting, too, the house they come up to. Uh, they all get out of the car, and the mom's like, oh, it's gorgeous. And, I mean, by today's standards, it's quite an ugly house because it's got like this really like blood red roof and tan siding and like underneath the deck on on like the ceiling of the deck it's like green it's it's super weird colors i mean for the time that we we're in now but back then it was a bit more normal i suppose yeah thankfully it wasn't as bad as some of those 80s houses that yeah. Or interiors or even things from like the 60s and 70s were just awful with their shag carpets and just truly nasty oranges right. and stuff. So right. the the house is pretty big and nice. It's much bigger and um, structurally nicer than at least what the book alludes to or maybe my imagination's just not that good. But uh, yeah, it's a like as far as like the build is it's a pretty nice house out there yeah yeah so right off the bat no more than just a couple minutes in i already have this i already got this sense that okay so the cat and gage are going to die here because there's this really short scene where he uh i have it here in my notes he tries to take the cat and almost walks on the road but mr crandall ends up saving him oh like like shuffling him off the road so immediately i'm just like okay so gage and the cat are going to die at some point in this movie the question is when so i kind of got the idea that first it's going to be the cat then it's going to be gage and then maybe we'll learn the lesson at the end that you probably shouldn't you know bring humans back from the dead well you nailed it yeah this film i i think this is kind of sad to say but that's one of the film's um, probably better moments of foreshadowing that's trying not to be as obvious. This film yeah. does like to telegraph to you what is going to happen next, what's going to come back to haunt you. It's always extremely obvious, and I will attribute that to King kind of thinking, how do I bring a book to life? Well, I guess what I need to do is just kind of tell the audience instead of really show them. Right. Yeah. This, it, you basically could almost straight up tell the audience that the kid almost got ran over by a semi and it could have killed him and the cat. 
<laughs> and it would have been almost the exact same thing, at least with this this small scene right here. Yeah, I, I I will say aside from that, there is a pretty good opening here. Uh, at least they're showcasing the pet cemetery in such a way that I think is creepy. We've got some Tim Burton esque eighties music going on. Um, I will I will say it's a nice atmosphere that does get me into the mood of what's to come, although. I will say the beginning lends itself to a much more horrific film or at least more of a horror film than what I think we actually get. Yeah. And I mean, that really could just be a, more of a product of the times as well, because for the time, I'm sure this is a rather uh, heavy movie to be watching, but now it's, I suppose, not as bad. Now, did you uh, recognize who Judd Crandall is he's played by a famous actor, TV actor mostly. I knew that he looked familiar, but I couldn't put my finger on what what else he, I knew him from. He plays Herman Munster in the old TV show The Munsters. Well, that that would be why I recognized him then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, without all of his makeup, he looks a little different, but yeah. he is still kind of has that tall, gaunt face. So I thought that was kind of cool to see him in there. And the studio was actually a little worried about choosing him because Herman Munster is a comedic character and this character is more of a dramatic role. But I think he does – I think he does a great job in this film, one of the better jobs of the rest of the cast. Yeah, I would say he probably, in my mind, does the best job Mm -hmm. here than anybody else. Uh, Yeah, I guess that makes a little bit of sense. I could see the voice now because it was always the voice that kept – bringing me back to okay who is that voice i know that voice from somewhere it has been a while since i've seen the monsters but yeah okay so that makes a bit more sense to me so yeah i would say he probably is the best actor here and the acting is aside from him it's fine in some scenes i think the dad and some sometimes he's fine and sometimes he's not all that great the wife is the same way the kid is fine. I mean, the, the baby gauges you can't really get too much out of him already. Uh, but yeah, the acting for the most part here is it's fine, but it does have some of that eighties schlock thrown into it, which is, like I said, kind of mentioned earlier. It's kind, of, it's a product of the times. It's not really avoidable. So I'll go ahead and say it. Dale Midkiff, who plays Lewis, is probably the worst actor here. Which yeah. is, uh, yeah, I would probably agree with that. And that's unfortunate because the film is, you know, he kind of holds up certain tenets of the film because he is our lead right. for the most part. And if the lead isn't interesting, then I'm going to be less interested and I'm not going to believe yeah. situations in the film as much. And unfortunately, Dale Midkiff doesn't really know how to be that expressive. When he does try to be expressive, it comes across as corny or just just ridiculous, honestly, especially there towards the end. But for the first half of the movie, he's just so boring. He's just so monotone with his voice and his face, yep. and I was disappointed with his performance. Yep. And to make things even weirder, we do get uh, how we do get this idea. We are told that he's a doctor and that they moved here because he's going to be working at the college nearby. But that only really happens in like one scene where we actually see him do doctory things. And aside from that, it's basically never mentioned again for the whole movie. Yeah, that is one of the 
points that they bring up and drop really quickly, and that is threaded throughout the book much better. And I guess that brings me up to probably one of my first issues with this movie is, although the initial sequences probably for, at least for the majority of the movie, they are really adapted from the book well at least as far in yeah this is the scene from the book and this is the story in a truncated format but ultimately we have to get to we get to these places and then we just breeze past them like you said with him being a doctor so quickly that they don't necessarily need to be this quick they're not threaded throughout the story in an organic way everything feels kind of blocky with um, how sequences are presented to us so I was disappointed about that. Apparently, there this movie was initially much longer. Okay. The studio. I wonder. Well, I wonder what it would have been like with a longer cut. I think it would have been better, because the studio said this movie is too long. No, you know nobody's going to want to sit through this. Cut, cut it down. This movie isn't even yeah. two hours, but the book is well over five hundred pages. So the movie should have been at least two hours. Yeah, that's a lot of condensing you have to do to get a book of 500 pages to the big screen. I mean, I know that Shawshank Redemption is like two and a half hours or getting close to that. And it's a short story. Yeah. It's not a full length <laughs> book. Yeah. So, I mean, you're always going to do some kind of condensing with a book, of, especially of Stephen King's length. And even ideas like Harry Potter as well. I know have some serious condensing in them. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it is kind of sad because this doctor thing happens in this one scene and then only really, I guess, kind of is a connection to later on when Gage grabs the scalpel and goes nuts with it, which only makes sense because he's a doctor. Aside from that, and maybe the Missy's saying, hey, I have stomach pains, maybe you can look at them, and then decides not to at the end. That's basically the only i guess way of us knowing that he's a doctor if they had cut out that doctor scene it's very hard it'd be very hard for us to know that he was actually a doctor a choice i was really surprised that they made is they made judd crandall single because in the book he has a wife named norma and norma does have like heart issues she's fairly old and there is a point in the book where norma has a heart attack and that's where Lewis's doctor skills really come into play for the story is okay. with helping save Norma's life. And then there's like some a bit more about that later on. So it does use his doctor skills and cut back and forth to that. And the book also talks a bit more about Lewis's beliefs in life and death and practicality from his doctoral side, but then kind of believing in the supernatural afterlife and um how can a doctor believe that somebody can come back to life so she's constantly trying to rationalize everything that's going on so i was disappointed to see they that could have made him a stronger character in this book if yeah, they would and, retain that yeah i'm totally with you because it is interesting that he is a doctor and he is the dr- driving force to be the one who wants to bring things back to life two times actually three times in this movie so i mean the connection is there but the problem is the movie does not even touch that it doesn't really dive very deep into why he thinks the way that he does why he's kind of wondering why how can you bring things back how can this be a thing what would happen if i did this you know we don't really dive too deep with that at all aside from him saying 
I have the drive and I have a love for my son and my and my wife. So therefore, I'm going to do it. And it's it's very surface level. I'm wondering, and from from what I understand, it sounds like the book goes much deeper with that. Yes, it does. And another thing that, uh, and of course, with the book, you do have more time to build things up and explain them because two thirds of the book is mostly just about the family's relationships and their dynamics. So you really do care about them. And there are very, very tiny hints of what might go on. And like, if I hadn't seen the movie or knew anything about it, Gage's death would have hit me even harder than it did. And reading the book, it does, it does hit you extremely hard because yeah. the way it's told, it's told after the point, and then Lewis kind of has these Jacob's ladder type flashbacks of when his son um, died. So that whole scene was incredibly heavy, and it and it hit you really well. But like I said, J- Gage's death doesn't come till well past page three hundred, and at that point, you know you're you're past midway, and there's not a whole lot left to do. But what does happen? happens in a timely manner and it's all it all does take its time to breathe but it still is heavy whereas this film doesn't necessarily do that but yeah i did want to bring up one more complaint here in the beginning and that is when they get to the pet cemetery i don't know if this is an editing issue where they did need to kind of space scenes out like more so transitional scenes instead of just what's the pet cemetery oh i'll take you up there sometime cut to him taking them up there um i did understand that there was a tiny transitional scene where she's like hey come on let's go and then you see them walk for like two seconds but in the book it was a much bigger deal where there was kind of these like scary ominous little like oh you know up there yeah that's that's a that's a place we'll we'll talk about sometime and then when yep. they actually go up there, it's kind of this mysterious hike that's strenuous. And when they get up there, I was a little disappointed that we just get there. And I just feel that kind of uh, kind of just kills any vibes we're getting or halts them before they can even begin of mystery. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you because they kind of introduce the pet, cemetery, the pet cemetery. And before we even have, I guess, a chance to imagine what is this pet cemetery we're there. Uh, this also kind of brings up an interesting question for me because early on, I think it actually is Judd, one of Judd's like first lines. He says that a lot of pets die here, and that's where the pet cemetery came mm-hmm. from. Uh, did nobody think about putting up a fence in this house or either house? Because those trucks, the semis that fly through that road, they go pretty fast. Like to a point where I would assume that somebody should probably start enforcing some kind of better speed limit. Uh, around that area but did nobody think about putting up a fence especially after seeing the pet cemetery because i feel like that would solve almost all the problems here (laughs) yeah that uh that'd be a good idea um (laughs) definitely is uh one of the things that i thought about as well and also at least the way the book is told i was also thinking why didn't they build this house farther back from the road because it's fairly close to the road and maybe the road wasn't as active when they built the house. I don't know if I really buy that either though, but it does seem like the perfect storm that they built a house next to the busiest road in America. And right. It does aggravate me how poorly they watched their children. 
And it's like, yeah, really? I mean, this road's really busy. Like, you're just being the most neglectful parent ever, or what's going on here? Right. Yeah. It just. I mean, I can get. I can probably get behind the fact that perhaps the road was kind of uh, crafted after the fact, and then it kind of ended up becoming a quick route, the or the most busiest route, just by happenstance. I'll get behind that. I just can't believe that they that nobody would decide, especially after they've buried who knows how many pets in the pet cemetery because they keep getting run over. That no one would think that. Oh, maybe we should go to fence because I feel like that would just, just solve all the issues here. Not to mention, you'd have to like gun it out of your driveway just so you would like get up to speed and traffic yeah. like really quickly and not get rear-ended. Uh, yeah, yeah. That I mean, that's why I'm wondering. Maybe we should do some enforcing of speed limits or harsher speed limits because you can't hardly back out of your driveway now. To be fair, the line is pretty big, so perhaps you have time to turn <laughs> around. But still, who's going to do that? One of the first departures from the book, one of the first editions, is the prominence of the character Missy Dandridge. Yeah, I was wondering about her a lot. She was referenced so little in the book that I would often forget. I'm like, now who is, like, where did she just come from? And I'm like, oh, I guess she watches their kids sometimes. I, From what I understand, she is one of the neighbors that, and they're like fairly far spaced out, but she just kind of babysits the kids from time to time when the parents need someone to watch them. But if I, if my memory is correct, she's married in the book and she is just kind of this sweet older lady that really doesn't have much part to play. But for the movie, King made her their prominent housekeeper who has these horrible stomach pains that she doesn't want anybody to look at. She's just this pessimist, but she's kind of funny, honestly, while going through this. But then all of a sudden she just writes the suicide note and hangs herself in the basement. And I'm, I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah. And I, yeah, she's like, I think in three scenes, maybe. Mm-hmm. I want to say she's only in three scenes. At least I remember her in three scenes. But yeah, she plays such a non-prominent role that when she does die, it's like, what? And I think the movie kind of explains that when you give something to, for, give something to the burial ground for it to be resurrected, it takes something away. But I don't. I guess I'm missing the connection there as to why Missy would be the one to go. If that's the case, it just seems like an odd choice aside from just trying to build tension in just a very poor way. From what I gathered, the reason that they wrote Missy up and had her die is just because Norma Judge isn't in it and she died, which prompts Ellie to ask all these questions about. Um, the afterlife and bring up those subjects since Norma isn't in it which I can't even understand why for some reason they chose to have Missy play that role but instead of just making a natural death they made it a suicide so uh, that's my only guess is because they didn't have Norma to die from the book so they'll have Missy die in the movie it's odd I feel like having Norma in the movie replacing Missy would have been a much better way of going about talking about this issue of death because you have two older even older couple across the street that all the kids are moved out of the house if they even had kids i can't remember if they did uh and they're getting towards that age where death is becoming a thing that could easily happen to them because they are getting that old and then you have this very young couple across the street with kids and so full of life and things like that and you have this dichotomy between these two families right across the road from this, this really busy road i feel like that would have been a much better way of portraying life and death in a movie like this 
in my own personal opinion. Oh yeah, it definitely would have been better because Judd and Norma Crandall very much become the grandparent figures to the yeah. kids. And also we find out Lewis never had a dad. His dad died when he was a small child. So Judd becomes his father figure and also his best friend. I understand that they're friends in this, but I never really get any close relationship between the two of them. Yeah, I got a hint of a fatherly role from Judd, but it really wasn't developed very yeah. well if that was what they were going for. Now, what do you think of Rachel and Lewis's on-screen relationship? It's uh, it's an interesting one because <laughs> mo- most of the time, Rachel is either uh, yelling at her kids or saying that's not the way I want them to be parented when she talks about like them teaching about death or she's asleep. So <laughs> there's really not much to her character aside from the climax, I guess. Yeah, in the initial scenes, I feel like they have decent on-screen chemistry. I think it's believable, their relationship. But And she is a very conflicted character in the book because of her past and how she deals with death. And right. um, it's much more meaningful dealing with Norma's death and... Rachel won't go to the funeral, but with Missy's death, and especially that occurring, doesn't that occur within, like, the first act? Maybe the beginning of the second act? What does? Uh, Missy's death. Yeah, it's a... I think it... Well, I think it's into the second act, but it is pretty early on. Yeah, so it's too early for us to really have any grasp of the right. of the meaning behind any of this, I would say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know it happens pretty soon after uh, Church is brought back, if I'm not mistaken. But yeah, uh, yeah. Her, I mean, Rachel's character. I think there's a lot there that the movie just, for one reason or another, doesn't explore. Uh, because we do kind of get a, a reason why she doesn't want her kids to be have really anything to be taught about them towards death. But I don't think it's a very good reason, and it comes off as uh, more of we have some more psychological, more pressing psychological issues with the wife than what the movie's kind of wanting to get into here. I feel like her reasonings for one not wanting to teach the children about this are, are rather weak. They may have been better in the book, but from the way that the, more, that the movie portrays it, it just feels more like it's a psychological issue with the wife than it is... Uh, then it is a good reason as to why she wouldn't want her kids to know about it at all. And that is one of the things Lewis is confused over. To him, her just sheer willingness to not even want to talk about death or face it is just incomprehensible. And he's, he says, like, you know, as a doctor, death is just a natural uh, right. part of, you know, the sequence of life. It's something we all have to go through. And it's really not something that needs to bring distraught and major arguments over. Now, in the movie, Rachel crying while Lewis talks about this or being really concerned or just getting up in arms, I think they do a good job of kind of threading that throughout the plot to make us interested in why she feels this way. And then in the book and movie, when you finally do hear about her sister Zelda, it is a horrific thing that we do learn about. And that was the one scene that I was curious to see what you would think of it, because regardless what you think of the movie or how much you, of you remember of it, 
the character of Zelda, I think, is unforgettable because she is so grotesque and terrifying. And just that whole flashback, it, it just gives you the creeps. It, it's just, ugh. Yeah, this is, yeah, the character of Zelda is definitely one of the more creepier parts of this. It is interesting, too. This is kind of getting off a bit of a bit off track, but it is interesting, too, that she, that she's just now explaining to her husband that this is the reason why I don't want to talk about death, but whatever. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, this kind of, this scene, especially with Zelda, is, makes me wonder, uh, if a longer movie would have made this a lot more fleshed out not just this scene but kind of just the whole movie in general because for the most part i feel like we're just living mostly on the surface level of this idea of bringing life back from death and we don't really go too deep into it aside from the doctor being the one who's i'm curious about this and that's about as far as i go and especially here with zelda there is something here and it's interesting but they don't dive too deep with it aside from this one scene and then some apparitions later on with the wife that's about all that we get with uh, her past. And I think that this is a very interesting past, especially when they say that though they didn't, I think the line is something along the lines of they didn't uh, let her die because let Zelda die because uh, they wanted her to stop suffering. They themselves wanted to stop suffering. So they, I guess they didn't really care too much that when she died or whatever, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting line that really does kind of explain the parents that she has. But once again, it doesn't probe too deep with this idea. No, it doesn't probe too deep with it, and the reason what the book is trying to do is connect Zelda and Gage, and that's strongly, um, not even referenced, it's just strongly shown here in the movie. Basically, Rachel's fear of death is she was home alone, and she... I was a little disappointed because I did want them to spend more time on the Zelda flashback, and I remembered it being much creepier than it actually was. Don't get me wrong, it still is creepy, but I just had some yeah. much darker memories of it. And that is one thing that I'm most looking forward to with the new movie, is how will they handle Zelda. And I really hope it's a little bit more grotesque and terrifying, because especially judging from her memories, it should be more nightmarish how we remember things. But they're trying to show that she was this little girl. Her parents left her alone. Zelda was essentially became this fairly evil entity that would just do nasty things like just soil her bed on purpose just to spite them. And then she did watch her sister suffocate. And it just like the mental trauma is a bit more explored in the book. And then it's supposed to tie back to how she lost her son. She lost her sister and then she lost her son in a horrific way. And then that comes back. It's not too much of an intricate part of the book, nor too much of a main focus. But nevertheless, I think the Zelda sequence and how Zelda kind of reoccurs is an unexpected addition that I think is nice. It didn't, it did not have to be in this at all. Like this just could have yeah. been a story without it. But the re but them bringing in Zelda, I think is it makes it kind of raises the level just a bit. Yeah, I would have liked for them to really explore uh, that connection between Zelda and Gage towards the end a bit more because they in the movie they don't really do that. There's something there, but it's not that much. They really don't do much to explore that. That seems to be the whole thing about my biggest issue, which is kind of with the movie all the way around, is there are things here, but they don't really explore them very well at all. Now, we should mention the character of Victor Pascal because he 
is a major player in this movie more so than in the book and i do get frustrated with this character in the third act um yeah but he's fine here in the first act he kind of gives us this ominous warning not as ominous as i would have liked because we get those cheesy um 80s glow effects through the trees yeah yeah there are moments where the effects work and then there are moments when they absolutely don't work at all this is one of those moments where it just you can tell it's fake one of the more odd choices this movie makes is its timing of when they shoot certain scenes i'm i'm wondering if just to make things easier they opted to just shoot most everything in the daylight except towards the end which even still a lot of it's in the daylight in the yeah. book a lot of this stuff is done at twilight and it kind of gives you this sense of when it comes to the pet cemetery and the micmac burial ground there's kind of like this weird timeless list like you're entering the twilight zone and there's just this otherworldly feeling going on but i was so disappointed when church dies and then they're climbing the deadfall this was all done at twilight when it's yeah. super it's yeah. dusk but this is during the day in the movie right yeah they it's it, they must be quite a road that they had to take because they pick <laughs> up the cat stuff him in a bag and then when they leave the sun is still out but by the time they get to the burial the burial ground the sun is down and it's definitely like in the middle of the night it must have taken them a long time to get there it, it seems like almost like an all day thing where they get there and they have to walk all the way back and it's about they're going to get back maybe maybe early in the morning Right. And I mean, that is close to the book, but it's not because, like I said, when they leave, it's sunset. And when they get back, they're like, gosh, you know, it must be like three in the morning and come to find out only just a few hours have passed. Right. Um, Not long at all. You know, two hours, maybe at the most, which they're really surprised about. So right. I was a little disappointed. Once again, they just cross the deadfall and they hear this loud noise in the trees which is supposed to be the Wendigo monster. Have you heard of that? Can't say that I have. I think it's like a some Native American folk legend of this Wendigo monster. It's brought up here a little bit, but Judd just explains it's just like noise is drifting up. It comes back more so in the end of the book. And it's really frightening scene where Lewis actually walks through the footprint of it. And it's just this giant monstrosity um, that he can kind of feel its presence in the mist around him. And then also when they climb, uh, they also have to climb really high up to the Wendigo burial ground. And it's it's just a lot different. They just I feel like they kind of cheapened it here for the movie. So I was disappointed. Yeah, I I did wonder where the like that giant roar that came when they first enter when they first climbing up to the burial ground where that came from and why it was never referenced ever again. But yeah, okay, going back to Pascal though, uh, I find his character to be mostly just a plot device for this entire movie, especially in the third act. He kind of just pops up here and there and then becomes for whatever reason a driving force to lead the wife back home and help her out, kind of. It's His character feels uh, almost worthless to me because of how... At least how they portray him in this movie. He's meant to be a guardian angel, like you like you said, but the way they 
the way that they go about that just seems rather poor than actually crafting a character that I guess would mean a lot more had they given him something more to do, I suppose. Oh yeah, he's definitely worthless in this movie. And once again, a problem that we encounter frequently is thinking the audience needs someone to hold their hand through this movie. Yeah. And that role is filled by Victor Pascal, but... He, I think he's referenced in the second act as maybe Ellie, which bugs me because her name is Ellen, but in the book they call her Ellie because she's a little girl. It just sounds better to call a little girl Ellie, I think. They just call her right. Ellen throughout this movie, and I'm like, why? Why did you do that? Anyways, nitpick, whatever. But yeah, then I was really shocked to see he plays such a prominent role in the third act as it just becomes a team up of Rachel. Rachel never has any of this help in it um, in the book. Ellie does have these bad dreams, which leads me to suppose Ellie might have the shining, which is not something uncommon for kids to have outside of the, the book, the shining. So I'm assuming Ellie has the shining and she has this, these premonitions of what's going on. Uh, But then we need Victor Pascal almost for comic relief it feels like yeah there are moments where it almost feels like it's comic relief like it, it gets it comes dangerously close a few in a few scenes and some of them are unintentional too oh i know and yeah. I, I, in the 80s they just they they really struggled to keep a consistent tone with certain things things would just get cheesy yeah and I mean, the character of Ellie is also strange to me because, like you mentioned just a second ago, she has like these visions of what's going to happen. Like it was almost like a "that's so Raven" uh, way of <laughs> going about this kind of yeah, a thing. Yeah, it's it's weird. Um, I don't really see why it's here because she warns multiple times as to what's going to happen, and nobody really cares, I guess, until I guess it's too late. But even then, they don't really. I guess the movie doesn't really show that all oh, crap she was right the whole time it just seems like it was thrown in because it's in the book therefore we have to have to have it in the movie i guess but even then there are a lot of things here that seem like they're in the book but totally not in the movie and that would have made the movie a lot better her character just seems really odd when it comes to this aspect of her uh, this character trait i guess with this with these psychic visions of the future yeah another thing is the whole reason of bringing church back was to spare can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. You're frozen, so I just want to make sure you could hear me. Another reason for um, kind of Ellie's premonitions and bringing Church back is for her to realize that something is off, but then also for her to kind of be comfortable with um, mortality. And uh, we really don't get that here in the movie because she was so close with her cat, and I, I guess I'm disappointed with that, is they went through all the trouble of bringing her cat back to life, and she's like, give Church a kiss for me. But then she just says, hey, Church smells bad. Go outside. And then like we never see that relationship again. And that's yeah. kind of prominent. That should have been carried through better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, once they bring Church back from the dead, he the cat kind of goes into the background. Which is weird for a movie that's called Pet Cemetery. <laughs> so, I did think it was funny when he threw that dead rat in the tub. Which can cats yeah. throw things? I don't know. I have seen my cat carry a dead bird into the house. Oh, that's fun. So, which was still actually it was still alive. So, 
Oh. Yeah, I have cats do bring things into the house. I haven't seen my cat bring a dead rat, but I have also seen my cat take mittens and toss them up in the air and then chase them, which is weird for a cat to do. But oh. yeah, they do toss things, but I don't know if a cat I don't know if a rat is light enough for them to do that. Maybe it's because it was dead and now it's alive. That seems to be our running trope with things that come back alive. They have super strength now for some reason. Yeah, I did think it was funny when uh, he throws the rat in the tub. It was also, the rat looked really fake, but it was just gross. And he like accidentally yeah. steps on it. I'm like, ah, you're you're grossing me out here. Yeah, kind of gross. Uh, I did want to mention, guys, Stephen King cameo in this movie, kind of like Alfred Hitchcock would do with his movies. Stephen King is the minister at Missy Dandridge's funeral, where we get a really prominent shot of him just, you know, saying the eulogy, you know, may the Lord's face shine upon you. And I'm like, hey, that's that's Stephen King. That's that's cool. Yeah. I mean, I missed it because I don't really know Stephen King's face all that mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. So perhaps on a rewatching, I would have noticed it. But yeah. Now, when uh, Ellie does start to ask about heaven and hell, I concluded this from the book, and I also did feel the movie um, draws this point as well, is the movie is not meant to give us a definitive doctrinal worldview about heaven and hell, but rather the narrative is a cautionary tale against playing God. So I would say that's the prominent worldview. Yeah, this is very much, uh, it's kind of one of those things where maybe you shouldn't bring things back from the dead, leave them, st- let them stay dead because they've kind of run their course. You know, I can see where it's going off of that kind of an angle and not necessarily saying that, oh, if you bring things back from the dead, if you try to play God, then it's a bad thing. It's it's more to do with that you just shouldn't in general because uh, as obvious in this movie, they come back and they're not so great anymore, which, I mean, I think, I think it's an interesting thing that they have a doctor as the guy who's like the driving force to kind of walk through this and be like why is this a thing why shouldn't we do this i want to do this and then i guess he kind of learns his lesson at the end but then kind of doesn't it's it's weird but yeah i do like that aspect that they take a doctor once again though they don't really drive too deep with it and it is an interesting concept to explore i would say is you know out of the ground god made man according to the book of genesis And then it's like, what if man could put something in the ground and have it come back as well? But they're using this Micmac burial ground, which were kind of the evil Indians they talk about in the book. They were opposed to the good Indians, and they kind of took over, and they just kind of cursed the ground and cursed the land. And so people have been kind of addicted to this thought and power thinking, you know— um they're, they're clinging on to mortality. They're clinging on to life instead of just accepting the death. And they always right. think each time they do it or introduce it to somebody else, they're, they're like sparing them from some kind of tragedy. But then they ultimately realize that death comes to us all and it shouldn't be this horrible thing that we should cling to life. So I really do like that exploration of, yeah. um, death and resurrection and is this a good thing or a bad thing to for these people to try and enact and ultimately the book lands on playing god comes with serious consequences usually dire ones and 
it'll nevertheless be an addictive thing because you can think that you can always fix the situation and just clinging to life is not necessarily always a good thing. Right. Yeah, I do like that. It also kind of goes into this idea that even death can be sometimes, uh, I guess, the best answer to things Mm -hmm. because uh, not necessarily saying that uh, because they kind of reference this, but only really in one line. And that's that Zelda was the one who was suffering. And then when they when they when Zelda did die, it was it was more like they did it for themselves, the parents and and the daughter, than they did it for Zelda, who was in pain. But it more to the more to the idea that especially when it comes to like Gage, who is even though he's a young kid and has a lot of life left in him, uh, it's still not a good idea to try and bring him back. I mean, the, the movie does take more of a cinematic role where he becomes the kid becomes more of a killer, but the idea is still there that you know it's going to come with some serious consequences if you try to do something like this, like playing God in this in this kind of a role. Unfortunately, Gage's death scene is handled really poorly yeah i was shocked at how bad it was when lewis slow-mo yells no and there's like old camera flashes of gage's baby pictures i just couldn't believe it yeah they i mean especially the dad screaming no is already kind of cheesy enough but them flashing the pictures of gage is just kind of the icing on the cake yeah this moment which and I feel like should have been much more heavy than it actually was is handled rather rather poorly to say the le- to say the least. Yeah, it is handled really poorly. I was very disappointed with it. It was a bit reminiscent of Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 when Annie dies and they play those home videos of her as a little girl. I found that to be more effective, still not the best. I remember you didn't care for that, Alan, yeah. but would you say yeah. that was a little better than this? That's hard to say. Uh, I would probably say that one is a bit better, but only by a little bit, because at least that one had a little bit of context going into it. This one, although there's context there, the way that they handle it kind of ruins it. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, I I, I agree. Neither of them are top-notch emotional uh, punches, I would say. Yeah. Um, and I mean, this scene already kind of begins, and you just you just know that Gabe's gonna die here because he's flying the kite, and there is this this looming sense of dread when the scene begins. I I kind of knew that okay, so this is the scene where Gabe dies. He's gonna get hit by a semi, and turns out that's what happens. Did you find it shocking when uh, Lewis's father-in-law starts uh, punching him at the funeral? <laughs> yeah, it seemed kind of unnecessary. I mean, I understand that the father-in-law does not like, uh, does not like the dad at all. I get that part, but it just seems rather odd to to put this into the movie. I mean, and maybe it is kind of a foreshadowing that he's going to push, he's going to put Gage into the Micmac uh, burial ground because he do stay, he does knock over the the coffin. You see the hand kind of show there for a moment. So it's that's what it's there for, but it just seems out of nowhere that the dad decides to just start yelling <laughs> at uh, at Lewis here. It just seems like we're creating conflict just for the sake of creating conflict so we can foreshadow some things, but it doesn't do it in a very good way. Let's well, get to get your perspective on it because I have all the context to the situation. 
Right. The movie doesn't provide any of it, mind you, but the book does. So I know why he's swinging punches at him. And it's, it's a pretty intense scene in the book, but not having read the book. Yeah. I would definitely agree that there is no context to this, save for Lewis saying, I'll never be a part of that family. Well, that doesn't mean they start beating you up in the church on your son's funeral. Yeah, they, that's totally uh, the, the father-in-law's fault here. Mm-hmm. There's he, the, only thing, the only thing that Lewis did is retaliate to, for, in self-defense. And one of the things that I think we've kind of been touching on here is they, they're really struggling to maintain like a coherent sense of like linear context with why these scenes like connect or giving us genuine payoffs. Once again, it's more so like, oh, that that was in the book. Let's let's throw that in here. And it's just more so, you know, blocks that are stacked on top of each other instead of like a line drawn. Right, right. Well, we do get a flashback to um, how Judd said that somebody did bury a person up there. And Judd and his friends went and lit the whole place on fire and killed him. I do take issue with this because Judd and his friends never did any such thing. They basically really? confronted him and said, hey, your your son's kind of uh, nuts and he's kind of scaring everybody, so quit it. And um, there's really interesting because the son comes up to them and he has like this evil, I guess almost demonic knowledge of everything they're doing like wrong in their life so he was like saying hey you're cheating on your wife you're you know cheating on your taxes or whatever and so he would all all, tell them all these um you know bad things in their life these like dirty little secrets they didn't want anybody to know and then the father eventually was like couldn't take his son anymore so he like shot him in the head and then shot himself and like burned their house down. I don't know why they make Judd the villain here as he's like, hey, we're just going to take the law into our own hands and just burn these people up. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, to be fair, the guy needed to die because he's already <laughs> dead and already causing a bunch of issues. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, they're taking matters into their own hands here. And it, I mean, he is kind of painted as a villain because he's the one who did it. And it also becomes foreshadowing, which is going to happen much later in the movie, in the third act, of what uh, Lewis is going to do. But yeah, it just, it was an odd choice for one to bring this up now, because I think this should have been brought up a while ago, because uh, we're just introducing more inf- more information in this movie at the wrong time. But at the same time, yeah, they do play Judd as the villain for reasons I that are just weird to me. I'm also interested to know what you think of the atmosphere of the movie. I would say the best time, the best use of it, especially uh, with what they're going for, is this probably this third act when you do get the sense that dad's kind of going crazy mm-hmm. and he's wanting to bring back not only his son, but then later his wife. Uh, I think that that's probably the best moment where they actually utilize some atmosphere to its full effect. I think it could be done much better, like uh, maybe given more context as to why he wants to bring back his wife other than saying, she just died a few minutes ago or she just died recently, so maybe she'll be fine. But aside from that, oh yeah, one other example I think that does a really good job. There was one shot when he digs his son up from his grave mm-hmm. uh, and then like he's holding his son up against his chest, sitting on the side of the hole he dug and the gravestone next to him. 
that's probably the best shot in the movie. Yeah. It's not framed very well, but it definitely <laughs> conveys a lot of emotion as to what it's trying to do. Uh, what it's trying to it's portraying a lot of emotion in a way that feels correct in a way that feels like okay, this is the way you do it rather than, you know, every other way that it's trying to do that. So I think that there are aspects here at the very end especially where the atmosphere is taken a much different uh, route than it has before, and I think it does a much better job. Not to say that it's good, but it is much better. Absolutely. That is, I would agree, one of the best scenes of the movie. I was, I just, I put, wow. It's so twisted to see a father holding his dead child while sitting in the grave hole. And I think that's something the movie does, I would like to have seen more throughout the movie is kind of this like twisted nature, kind of this inverted aspect where this young family should be focusing on life. But it seems like the more they try to focus on life, the more death crops up and everything just becomes inverted where church is always bringing them dead things to remind them of, well, death. But, and then uh, just they have all these people like the Norma is dying around them and they just keep hearing increasingly haunting stories of the past of how people have used this for purposes, but it ends up just driving them insane. And even the road is just always a constant reminder of um, just kind of dread this, um, you know, they're not mortal. It's always hanging over their heads. So I would agree. The third act is the most atmospheric Otherwise, this movie does not even have much of a horror aspect to it at all, which I was disappointed yeah. about. And there's very little emotion found in this movie, save for when he does hold Gage. And then they do have to re-kill their child, I guess. Right. right yeah, that, that scene when he, he's holding Gage, I think, is probably the most palpable scene in this whole movie. And it's kind of sad to say because there should be, I feel like there should be more of that here. Like, maybe one of the changes they could have made is uh, maybe have Church die while Ellie was at home or something along those lines so you can get some more emotion from this movie. Because for the most part, it feels somewhat emotionless aside from a couple of scenes. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of sad because of a movie that's dealing with, you know, life and death. And sometimes the emotions that go into that and what drives a person to pursue life. They don't really explore those deeper themes here. They kind of reference them, but then they kind of move on to something else. Uh, they don't, once again, they're not probing very deep here. Alan, were you clear on Rachel's motivation to get back to their house as quickly as possible here towards the end? I was a bit confused because I know Pascal had something to do with all this. Uh, I guess to a certain extent, but then it also kind of came off as he actually doesn't have much power to do this. I, I was a bit confused as to what her motivation was. I was, a bit, I was a bit confused as to what her motivation was to uh, drive back home and check on everybody and see what's going on. It just seemed rather strange. And the she and the apparitions from their daughter didn't really help matters either because it, it didn't really aid the scene in any way either. Yeah, I was afraid that all of this would come across as far too ambiguous as to any real character motivations here, save for... Duex Victor Pascal, who, yeah. you know, would just conveniently comes in and gives everybody dreams and stuff. 
So in the book, it's much more clear that Rachel is severely grieving and Lewis has no ability whatsoever to comfort Rachel or Ellie. So Lewis wants to get them both out of the house for the purpose of bringing Gage back and then hopefully reintroducing Gage back into the home. He feels that Gage right. will probably be mentally retarded, but that's okay. And he thinks that getting out of the house will help Rachel, but as a doctor, he knows that that's not the best thing for her actually to get her out of the house. It's best to just kind of stay there, confront their problems and, you know, kind of grieving it over them. But instead, there's much more of a internal struggle where Lewis really debates doing this. He knows in his heart that he'll always do it, but he like wants to get caught and stopped from doing this because he just knows it's not right. But then Rachel never feels easy about Le like Lewis just staying there for a few days and then coming along with her. And then Ellie keeps bringing up these kind of weird dreams she's having about something going wrong. And then Rachel's like, I just have a bad feeling as well. And then Rachel comes to the conclusion that Lewis is going to commit suicide. She's like, ah, that's why he wants us out of the house is so he can just kill himself. And uh, I think that's much more of a stronger motivation than having Pascal being just this guardian angel warning. Yeah, yeah, that works so much better on so many levels because it is such an internal struggle uh, from both ends. One to from both ends, one for Lewis to try and save his kid, and one for the mom to kind of put the pieces together and think he's going to commit suicide. It makes a lot more sense to put when you put it in that perspective. But that's something that the movie, once again, just doesn't explore for one reason or another. Uh, he just just he just does it because he wants to get them out of the house, really only for the reason of trying to save Gage. And then once, and then trying to reintroduce that gauge back to the family, which is, I mean, the reason is there, and you can tell that the man's kind of uh, de degraded into the state. But the way that they pull that off is not very well done. Now, as for the final horror sequence we have here. I think that the sequence where Judd is trying to find Gage is one of the better um, horror sequences of the movie. I really like the POV shots. The camera work is unsettling because we're just as mystified and on edge as Judd is. And also um, his the, the set design of his home, it's just dark. Um, well, the lighting is well done, but it's just kind of this decrepit old house that we've never been in before. So I would say probably this right. is the strongest horror element, Judd's death scene. Now, Rachel, on the other hand, I don't think works as well. Yeah, Judge Death, it is kind of funny, though, because before all this, he knows that uh, Lewis is going to go bring his child mm -hmm. back and then sits on his deck and waits and then falls asleep. Yeah. So he does absolutely nothing to try and stop mm -hmm. Lewis. It's kind of kind of funny. But yeah, this scene, I did remember seeing one snippet of this movie, and that's the scene when uh, Gage cuts his Achilles heel. Uh. I think it was back, I forget what, what I was watching, but it... I'm guessing it was some Watch Mojo video back when I had an obsession with mm -hmm. him. And that was the scene that one of the things that they were showing is that scene. I was like, oh, I remember this. But yeah, this is probably the best moment in the movie or one of the better. Uh, it's the best moment in terms of the climax here is Judge Death scene. When they move on and, and Gage attacks Lewis, it doesn't look very good. And then Mom eh, also doesn't 
it's just it doesn't really have that emotional punch that I feel like it should probably have. No, it does not have the emotional punch it should have, which I was really hoping that it would. It is a quick scene in the book, but it's such a sad scene. And then when Lewis does wake up the next day, he doesn't get a call from Gage and gets all infuriated and runs over there and sees the house with like mold all over it. Yeah. Okay. I don't really understand that. Uh, what happens is it's just more so just a sense of just 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 this total dread or just this total like depression, I guess, where Lewis sees a strange car parked in front of Judd's house and Church is laying on top of it. Lewis just has this feeling that something's completely wrong. And he right. thinks that what if Rachel drove back and just – it's it's just like Lewis completely resigns himself that his wife is dead, Judd is dead. He has to use the syringes on Church and and that other guy. And I really like that more of this Lewis just completely settles into the fallout of his actions. Whereas this, we get this over the top fight scene, which is not in the book at all. Lewis just just okay. takes his son out. And it's just such this serene moment of just, uh, I guess it's just much more serene, but it's still just, I'm tr- I'm having trouble thinking of the proper word, but it's just somber, I guess I would say. Yeah. Okay. So the end, you're telling me the ending is uh, him just injecting his son with this medicine and that's it. And then him kind of like wallowing in the way in what he did and stuff like that. Yes. But then he does burn the house down, but then he takes Rachel out there and it's really weird because he has a, a friend that is not, I think they're barely referenced here in the movie. You wouldn't even know who they were if you hadn't read the book. But um, yeah. his friend sees Lewis climb the deadfall with Rachel's body. And then all of a sudden he crawls out to him and Lewis turns around and Lewis has aged by many decades. What? And he just looks extremely like old, like the whole situation just took a major toll on him. And then... um He's just sitting at the table waiting for Rachel and Rachel does come back. She just puts her hands on him and says like, hello, darling. And then it ends. Hmm. That feels like a bit more of an emotional punch because you don't know if Rachel is going to be the same way as Gage is when she wakes up. Hmm. That is interesting because yeah, this scene when he fights Gage is really, this is one of the worst moments of special effects because you can tell it's a doll. You can tell it's a puppet. And it doesn't age well at all for this movie. No. But, and yeah, and the scene where he does inject his son is, it it feels like there's some emotion just missing in this scene. Like there really should be because it is his son and he was the one who did this and now he has to solve it. And yeah, so that does sound like the book had much more of an emotional punch to it that the movie is sorely missing. It feels like the movie was going for a... Uh, let's just scare the audience as much as we can kind of vibe. And while I'm sh- it may have worked back in the 80s, it is not really held up very well. No. Uh, yeah, I I mean, I did remember the creepy scene of animatronic Gage, like staring down from at the attic. I mean, that's kind of like a good memory. Like if you watch it in the movie, it doesn't look good, but it, like your memory softens it up and makes it look a lot better than it really did. Um, so yeah, and then he jumps down and he's basically just shaking around with a doll. I mean, (laughs) yeah, that was one of my major problems with the, um, child's play movies. The Chucky movies is how in the world can a doll overpower a fully grown human being? 
Right. Same with a child. I understand, I guess, these people come back with enhanced powers, although that's not necessarily true in the book. Nevertheless, it wouldn't be that hard to overpower Gage. Thankfully, King knew that in the book for some reason. I'm thinking this is studio mandated. You have to have some exciting climax because I do I do know that the movie was going in like the book where Rachel just comes in and says, hello, darling, although Rachel wouldn't have been all decrepit because she wouldn't have decayed at all with that fast right. of time period. And then the, the movie was just going to end. But the studio said, whoa, that's not exciting. Have a have a scene where they're like, that's not scary. Yeah, they're like, make her look gross and have them make out in a nasty way. And then she can like, maybe yeah. she'll stab him and screams and then cut to black. So the studio messed it up. And not to mention yeah. when he does stick his son with a needle, it's so cheesy when Gage says, no fair. And then, yeah, no fair. No fair. Walks away, bonks his head, and then he burns him up. I'm like, yeah. why? Why? Yeah. I mean, I kind of like the idea that they have, I guess, that they're going for when he does kiss his wife after she's been brought back. Oh, gross. It's gross, but I, I like the sure. idea that they're going for. I don't think that they pull it off very well, mind you. No, I like it too. But, yeah, but I will have, I, it is an interesting way of showing that he's basically become completely obsessed mm-hmm. with this idea of life after death to a point where i mean it is his wife after all so i mean there is already the love aspect already brought into it but yeah i think it is interesting but once again there really is no emotion put into it aside, maybe just a little bit but not very much so it, it kind of plays away all the what could have been there but it isn't there so yeah this this ending i mean it's it's fun and all but once again, like I've mentioned many times before, there's a bunch of emotion just missing here that I feel is kind of needed for a movie like this, where you have family members, close family members that die, and then you bring them back to life. Um, and then there really is no way. And that probably might even be due to the fact that Lewis's actor, the actor of, that plays Lewis here is not doing that great of a job. And maybe that could have been done to the fact that he wasn't giving much to work with. Mm-hmm. Who knows? There, there, be, there could be multiple reasons here, but I don't think that the way that Lewis has acted here does a very good job of portraying very much emotion, especially for what you would assume from a fatherly role here. And just in case you weren't ready to get off the emotional roller coaster, cut to credits with a rock song by the Ramones? Oh, <laughs> yeah. This this was bad. This ending song Come one as a complete tone shift from what we just witnessed. <laughs> it was such a it get hurts almost. It does. It was such a hard tone shift. And apparently, Stephen King loves the Ramones. And like one of the producers was like, "Hey, Stephen King loves you guys. You guys want to write a Pet Cemetery song?" And I think the song is the song talks about the Pet Cemetery or something. Yep. And then, just no, this is not. We needed something really somber here at the end probably or yeah. just something I don't, I don't know what because the movie's so cheesy with lewis screaming cut to black right. what do you do i don't know i guess the ramones is the only thing you can do so <laughs> right yeah that's the 80s i guess for this movie i would have i wonder if they had followed the book almost to a t for this ending if maybe playing through the credits at least the initial credits before the rolling ones if they play just like just yeah. silence and just had nothing there. I think that maybe that would have helped settle in the the weight of this movie. But I mean, they don't do that. They they, they do kind of their own thing here. They kind of make up. They have a more of a makeshift ending than anything else. So yeah, I mean, 
having music here definitely is totally fine, even with the zoning, but this kind of music, mm, I don't know about that. It's a pretty interesting choice that they make. Yes, for a good... Oh, gosh. Okay, I won't, I'm not going to say it. It's too much of a spoiler. I don't want to spoil it, but... Let's just say Alan and I have seen movies recently, one nominated for Best Picture of the Year that deals with this subject matter and music in a good way that does really let you feel yep. the impact. I know exactly what you're Not talking about. Say, yeah. Alan knows what I'm talking about. Yep. If you go watch all the Best Picture ones so you can figure it out for yourself. Yep. It's a secret. <laughs> secret for now. You'll figure it out. Such a, that's such a uh, vague secret too. It is. <laughs> So, Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for Pet Cemetery? Well, amidst some well-done atmosphere towards the end, especially with this sitting on the side of the grave with the sun, which is usually the best shot in the whole movie, uh, Pet Cemetery doesn't really hold up very well uh, in my mind. There are a lot of things that just don't make any sense. Pascal could be completely written out and not really change much, aside from maybe the opening with the, with the dad. The dad's doctorly role is only referenced like once or twice, and that's really about it. Uh, uh, the Their maid is only in one prominent scene, and then she dies for whatever reason. They kind of explain, but they don't really do a very good job at explaining it. Uh, Judd is probably the best acted character here, but I once, but like with him and a lot of other things in this movie, there could have been so much more emotion put into it, or really even just dug, diving deep below just the surface level of life and death i think it would have made this movie so much better or at least a lot more engaging so at the end of the day it's not good um i was i guess i can't say i was bored by it because i wasn't but at the same time it is a movie that i would not like to return to in the future because i have a feeling it would bore me uh and aside from that it is extremely cheesy and has the 80s wrapped around its finger and i mean to be fair that is kind of unavoidable in some scenes, but at the end of the day, no, I don't think it's good. Uh, I'll give it a four out of 10 and a definite not recommend. Stephen King's Pet Cemetery is a decent beat for beat adaption of his source material. If you haven't read the book, don't care to read the book and you want the Pet Cemetery experience, it's all right here in a nice neat package that won't even take up two hours of your day. King's book is nowhere near his longest written, but King does a fantastic job of putting the characters and thematic elements first, and the horror aspect comes as a necessary outcome of their choices. For instance, Gage's death doesn't happen till well over page 300, which is over halfway in the book, and by that point his death hits you like a bag of bricks. I will say the location, set design, and makeup are quite well done, and a few certain scenes are transported from page to screen, and not to mention Zelda is unforgettable. While this film begins strong, it quickly falters into a briskly paced story that forgets to develop the characters. I'm disappointed with the lack of connection we're not given to deal with these characters and the traumatic events they go through. I don't feel the weight of Lewis's decision to resurrect Gage, nor do I feel the anxiety of the pressure mounting on the family as they blindly go towards impending doom. Performances are mostly weak, especially coming from Dale Midkiff, whereas Fred, Fred Gwynn gives the strongest performance, and the one most like his character from the book. I understand certain elements have to be changed when bringing the story to the big screen. I'm just disappointed this film lacks a heart. Pet Cemetery receives 5 stars out of 10, with a mild not recommend. 
One interesting thing that I guess I forgot to mention earlier is in both uh, Missy's hanging scene and then later with Mom's hanging scene, more prominent with Missy, you do see the rope around her neck, but you can totally tell that it's being strapped to a harness behind her. <laughs> Just wanted to mention that. I thought it, oh, I saw it on my viewing and I was like, aha. Great. So you can totally tell it's fake. Um, plus, I don't think the neck hangs down when you hang somebody. It's like more like this, but... That's just me. Um, one thing I forgot to mention is when Lewis walks into the house and he sees everything like decrepit and old, like goo all over the walls. I feel like I was, I just walked into troll two. <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a compliment. I I could see some silent hilly vibes from it, but for like three <laughs> seconds, uh, I do see troll two in it though. I, I guess I can see that. Yeah. That's not a very big compliment though. <laughs> no. Well, it's a compliment deserving of that element of the movie, I feel. Or Fair put enough. down, whichever way you take it. I don't know. You can take it both ways, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Well, listeners, thank you so much for joining us on our review of Pet Cemetery. Don't worry. We will be reviewing not Pet Cemetery 2. I'm glad we're not wasting our time on that. We will be reviewing the new 2019 Pet Cemetery. Which I hear more recently is going to be rated R. Of course, I would I would hope. So I hear it's going to be pretty. Yeah, whole, I honestly, yeah, I hope they don't go for a PG thirteen because nine times out of ten, those don't usually work. There are very few exceptions. Oh no, absolutely, this would not work as a PG thirteen movie. It would be crappy. It's got to be yeah. R. Sorry if you're, you got to judge it based off the source material and the themes and situations they're going for and this is an r rated movie so it is going to be rated r i'm looking forward to seeing what they do based upon the trailers it looks pretty good and i have faith jason clark is going to be much better than dale midkiff everybody just looks much better this whole movie looks to be a bit more top notch and it looks like it's drawing from some much creepier horror movies that we've seen recently and we've had a pretty good run of horror atmosphere now whether those stories necessarily pay yeah. off at least the atmosphere is there yeah i i will say this in the recent years especially the last about two or three horror is kind of making a comeback especially with like movies like mm-hmm. get out uh, hereditary was a big yeah. hit too movies like that tend to be a lot i guess better in terms of filmmaking than in years past uh at least more recent years past. yes and although i didn't like hereditary and the witch they still had a really strong atmosphere. Yeah. So, and Get Out has a strong atmosphere as well. And I'm looking forward to seeing Us, but we're not reviewing Us. That's oh, just yeah. something we'll watch on our own time. <laughs> yes. Uh, but nevertheless, we will be coming back with a little bit more horror for you, or thriller, or mystery. I don't know. Maybe it's all three with M. Night. It's a mixed bag. Yeah. With M. Night Shyamalan's The Sixth Sense, the movie that put him on the map, the movie for his third sort of fourth movie that took him to the oscars actually yep and well that's next week so i'm pretty excited to be talking about that because it i watched it uh two years through three years ago um and i haven't seen it since then so we'll see if my thoughts have changed since i last watched it i have a little bit of a story associated with the sixth sense that maybe you can relate listeners don't watch it when you're uh uh like 12 (laughs) Uh, it'll it'll give you a little little bit of a nightmare. So, but I'll, well, I mean, it is PG thirteen. So, what were you doing watching a PG thirteen movie at the age of twelve? Quickly? I learned my lesson. You wait on those till you're thirteen. 
until you can handle it. Uh, if you're on the cusp, don't even try. So yeah, if if you're a second past, if you're a second before, and once you're a second past the date you were born, then you're then you're perfectly fine. I learned my lesson. I'll relate to you my horrifying sixth sense experience next week when we do that review. So I'm looking forward to telling you that story. Oh, dear. So if that's anything, listeners, don't watch The Sixth Sense with your kids, okay? It's a little, little heavy. Uh, but yeah, after The Sixth Sense, we'll be following that up with Shyamalan's next film, Unbreakable, which, surprise, is actually the first installment in a trilogy nobody knew we were getting or wanted. Yeah, a very unexpected trilogy that just kind of came out of nowhere, really. Speaking of trilogies, we will be finishing, after Unbreakable, the original Mad Max trilogy with Mad Max Beyond Thunderdrome, but then we will be jumping into the quadrilogy aspect of it with Mad Max Fury Road. So if that was confusing, I wasn't meant to be confusing. It's going to be Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, and then Mad Max Fury Road to finish that back up. Then we'll jump back into Shyamalan and uh, start up some new retrospective series. So I'm looking forward to all of those. Mm-hmm. Yep. And right after we do, a th- I guess, our third round of uh, M. Night Shyamalan, we have a little thing called uh, Back to the Future, I believe, is next. So pretty excited. Yeah. Alan is a huge uh, BTF fan. Yes, I, think. I have the trilogy on Blu-ray. I bought it recently, yeah. actually. Well, Alan, thank you for joining me on this podcast. Sure thing. All right, listeners, thank you for joining us as well. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please let us know. Give us a rating. Give us a five-star rating. It really does help us get noticed by other people who do want to uh, find a fun time listening to us talk about movies and then talking about it with us. So always comment down below your thoughts, what you thought of our thoughts, and we want to hear your thoughts as well and engage with you. So make sure to like, subscribe, share with your family and friends. Check in the description below, so that'll give you all the links to our website, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. You can go through those as well. And if you go through the website, you can subscribe through email, so every Friday you will never miss a beat. Once again, listeners, thank you so much. And if you do want to keep this podcast free, head on over to our Patreon page. That's in the link as well. For the price of a Starbucks cup of coffee, you get a lot of great content such as bonus podcasts, commentaries, Q&A, our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers. You get to keep that. The Starbucks cup of coffee, you drink and it's gone. This is yours to keep. So we really do help. That does help us keep the lights on here and helps keep these episodes free for you to listen to. So thank you so much, listeners. We do appreciate it. We will see you next week with The Sixth Sense.